we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, and your host. This week, we're hosting John Fury, who is Director of Investigations here at the Center, but spent four years at ICE, at Immigration and Customs Enforcement, working on a whole variety of issues. His position when he left there was Chief of Staff of ICE. So he had exposure and influence in all kinds of different aspects of what ICE does. But what we're going to talk about specifically this week is something called the Optional Practical Training Program, OPT. It sounds kind of wonky, you know, who cares? It's one more dusty corner of the immigration system, but it's not. John's going to tell us a lot more about it, but OPT is the biggest foreign guest worker program that isn't technically a foreign guest worker program. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding it, a lot of fraud issues. Last year, there was raids that ICE conducted, something called Operation Optical Illusion, OPT. And the point was to go after fake companies that were essentially set up by ringleaders of these fraud rings to create employment, basically, or get employment to get the ability to work in the United States for foreigners, but dishonestly, in other words, without following the rules of this program, such as they are. So John's going to tell us a little bit about what the background of this is, what are the issues, and maybe what we should do about it. John, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Mark. This is a very important topic, and I'm happy to talk about it. You mentioned Operation Optical Illusion. I used to joke that kind of sounds like we were raiding lens crafters. <laughs> but on paper, it makes a little more sense because the O, P, and T and optical are capitalized, which of course stands for optional practical training, as you referenced. Well, this investigation is an operation that was run and hopefully is still being run by ICE's Homeland Security Investigations, HSI. It was developed around 2019, and it was aimed at reducing fraud within the DHS program known as OPT, which allows foreign students to obtain work permits upon graduation and train in a job related to their field of study for up to three years. So, I mean, let's make clear, they're not students anymore at this point. They're essentially masquerading as students, or they're keeping the student visa but turning into essentially foreign workers, right? That's right. And this is a serious point of controversy. I mean, the persons who came into the U.S. on a student visa are here to obtain an educational degree. And yet, when it's done, DHS created a regulatory program that allows them to get these work permits. And we'll go into more detail about how that operates. But when we started digging into this, we uncovered extensive fraud within the program. And I can conclude very easily, I think everyone has at this point, is that there are thousands of foreign nationals who are here on these student visas who have graduated, who have obtained work permits through OPT, but who are falsely reporting their employment into DHS. This means we have no idea where they are. 
what they're doing, where they're working, which of course raises very significant national security concerns, but also labor market concerns that aren't being addressed. So in other words, even if the security issues put that aside, let's say there is no security issues, these people are working probably, but they're not working according to the rules of this program, which is supposed to be technically somehow related to your degree. That's right. And I would even suggest, and maybe we'll go into this in a future podcast, that the rules of the program itself that are supposed to address some of the labor concerns are not really being enforced the way they need to be. No surprise there. So despite all of these concerns, though, I have a source who tells me that under this current administration, HSI has stopped all investigative work aimed at OPT. I'm shocked. I hope it's not true, but if they were still doing this work, then we would expect to have seen hundreds of foreign students arrested at some point over the past handful of months. We haven't, and that makes me very concerned. So what is this thing, and like, how many people, how did it get to where it is now? So first, people need to understand that OPT is a creation of DHS. It was created by regulation rather than through statute by Congress. And this allows any foreign nationals who enter on a, on a student visa to obtain work permits for employment up to three years beyond graduation. The main requirement, the central requirement, is that the job has to match up to their field of study. So if they studied art history, maybe they get a job at the Smithsonian. If they studied computer engineering, perhaps they might get a job at Facebook. That's sort of the main threshold requirement. For any field of study, no matter what they studied, a foreign student can obtain a work permit that lasts one year. If they studied a STEM field, science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, they can receive three years of work authorization. Now, we call this training. That's the name of the program. But of course, there aren't that many jobs out there that require three years of training beyond graduation. And even folks within HSI would point this out to me. They would say, look, there's nothing equivalent for U.S. students who graduate from college. You just go and you find a job, you start working. And, you, and probably your first job's not really going to match up to your field of study. There has been some OPT for many years, in other words, in a much smaller, much narrower way. But in a sense, it was, I think, thought of, and the reason the earlier administrations, I mean, before the expansions starting under Bush, which you'll talk about, before that happened, it was seen kind of as an internship thing. In other words, it's like, well, a summer after graduation and you work for a few months, you know, maybe six months or whatever. In other words, it really was conceived of as a continuation of the education, even though you'd gotten your degree, and it's just completely morphed into something that's literally unrecognizable. Right. And there was some understanding, too, that there are certain degrees that require hands-on training, like nurse work, for example. If you're going to be a nurse, you have to go out and get some practical training. Sure. And so the sense was that if U.S. students could go get the training and then get their degree, but the foreign students could not, we got a problem. They can't actually do what they're supposed to be doing and, right. and actually get hands-on training. But of course, it's morphed into something else. Let me give you some numbers. In 2020, there were over 490,000 foreign nationals employed via OPT. This, this is either the one-year program, the three-year version of it, or something called curricular practical training, CPT, which takes place during school, but it's a very small number compared to Yeah, well, to that actually, two. I mean, the curricular practical training is kind of like what you would think it's supposed to be. In other words, because there are schools like that where it's all, you know, one semester class, one semester work, one semester class, that kind of thing. Yeah. That, in a sense, 
if you're going to let in foreign students, that actually makes sense, depending on what their field of study is. That's right. And there's also the argument to be made, and this is kind of touched on in the regulation, that some students just need to work while they're in school. Maybe they're working at the cafeteria or something as right. a way to make some extra money. I see. That might make sense. The top countries for the STEM OPT program include India, China, South Korea, Taiwan, Nepal, Nigeria, Iran. Those are the top countries. Now, of course, this exists because DHS created it largely at the request of billionaire tech giants who were looking for a way to bring in more foreign labor. That's the truth. Everyone knows that. In fact, wasn't it specifically Bill Gates at a dinner in Georgetown? Yes. Uh, I mean, the story I've heard is that, I mean, this wasn't some kind of amorphous thing. I mean, this was a very specific, was Bill Gates talking to whoever it was. It was, it was the DHS secretary, whoever it was, at a dinner in Georgetown. I mean, it's that you can actually pinpoint it that much. Yes. And in fact, Bill Gates himself testified before Congress in 2008 on this very issue. And of course, he wanted more H-1B tech visas, which they're always asking for those to be expanded. And in his testimony, he suggested that OPT be created to overcome those annual caps. Because the H-1B program, as our listeners probably know, has an annual cap of about 85,000 people. And of course, there's only one policy which can be described with, by one word as to what Silicon Valley wants for their immigration policy. More. Correct. And they aren't getting that. So the first version, if you actually look at the STEM OPT regulation, the first version that was put forth by the Obama administration, the justification for it specifically is that the H-1B program is oversubscribed. That's what DHS said over and over. It's oversubscribed. It hits the limit every year. And they openly were saying this was an end run around the congressional caps on H-1Bs. It's an executive move to essentially negate legislative requirements. That's right. And not only that, when you do a regulation, you generally have to put it out in public for notice and comment, where the public can provide feedback. It's a good thing because sometimes the agencies hadn't really thought of certain concerns. Well, DHS under the Obama admin, attempted to do this without notice and comment, making it an emergency rule, the argument being that it was an economic emergency, and that if these current students were to graduate in the spring, they have to go home, and Microsoft couldn't hire them. That was their argument. Well, that sounds like an emergency to me. <laughs> so the courts rejected this, and they had to redo the entire rule, and it got put into place in, in 2016. And it's available on ice.gov. You can read through it. Now, because OPT is a regulatory creation, it operates with less oversight than a foreign worker program like H-1B. For example, as we've mentioned, the H-1B program has an annual cap. With OPT, no limitations. Like I said, there's 490,000 people that are working under this. As another example, when Congress created the H-1B visa, they required the Department of Labor to play a role. And DOL is supposed to look at the wages being paid, and make sure that the program isn't being used to undercut U.S. workers or to warp the labor market. That's the whole prevailing wage analysis that's supposed to occur. Technically, anyway. Yeah, that's right, technically. With OPT, there's no functioning wage analysis process. During the notice and comment period, the public repeatedly pointed out that this was going to upset the U.S. labor market and potentially harm wages. And DHS assured the public multiple times that they would keep a close eye on this, 
the wages had to be commensurate for the STEM LPT program. I don't even know what that means, a commensurate wage. It was just a complete lie. And the reality is there is not a robust wage analysis process at ICE to oversee this program, which kind of makes sense because ICE is not a labor agency. It's an enforcement agency. Why is this even under ICE? Well, the reason it's under ICE is because all of the data that relates to foreign students is contained in something called SEVIS, the Student and Exchange Visitor Information System. And that was a post 9-11 tracking program to make sure that we knew who's coming into the country, where they're going, what they're doing. DHS needed to be the ones to run it in the mind of Congress. And not only that, they didn't want USCIS running it, they wanted a law enforcement agency running it. So it was put in ICE. And then because CVS was there, DHS decided to put OPT there as well, because it's all kind of interconnected and, and related. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be at ICE. The, the actual program, which is called SEVP, the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, but because it is there, it allows for better oversight, in my opinion. And you do have at least some nexus to investigators and enforcement personnel. If they want to do any investigating or enforcing, that is. That's right. I can tell you this, too, that when we started digging into the wage analysis aspect of OPT, and people can FOIA my emails if they'd like, I asked the folks running SEVP how they did wage analysis. What were they looking at? What tools did they use? And the response that I got was, well, we're not experts on wage analysis. And if you have any ideas, we're all ears. <laughs> <laughs> now, I appreciated the candid nature of the response, but you would think that DHS would have thought this through a little bit if they're going to be creating a massive worker program. And they clearly had not. So there's 500, almost 500,000 foreign workers, and nobody any did, did any kind of meaningful analysis of what the effect on the labor market would no. be. No. And there were a lot of problems with this. You know, we did work with the Department of Labor. The problem is obvious. We can't demand DOL come work for us or do analysis for us. They are appropriated for certain things, but they're more than happy to talk to us about how they would do wage analysis. And we got a lot of good ideas from them. But the problem was that ICE isn't really collecting the type of data that you would need to do the type of wage analysis in the first place. And then, of course, USCIS, ICE's sister agency, is also involved because they're the ones that are giving out the work permits for OPT. And they're not necessarily collecting the right data either. So they kind of assume that ICE is doing some of the wage analysis. ICE assumes that USCIS is doing some of the wage analysis, but truthfully, nobody is. And we can talk a lot more about that maybe down the road. One other thing that's kind of important to remember here, and that is that when it comes to OPT, the government does not really have a relationship with the employer. Usually when it comes to foreign worker programs, like the H-1B program, it is the company that petitions the government for foreign workers. It's the company filling out the paperwork. Right. And so the government has that relationship with the employer, not so much the employee necessarily. Well, with both in a sense, because the employee had to get the visa or whatever. That's right. true. That is right. true. But at least there's some recourse for right. the government if the employer does something that's problematic. With OPT, it's the student who fills out the paperwork to get the work permit. And they actually, for standard OPT, the non-STEM version, they just fill out the paperwork and get the work permit without even having an employer in place yet. So USCIS just gives them out. Right. And this becomes a bit of a problem for us because that lack of relationship with an employer means that ICE or DHS as a whole really doesn't have much leverage over that employer. 
And so we found ourselves having to use existing worksite authorities of HSI to start to dig into some of these cases. Interesting. So let's talk about the fraud a little bit. One of the very first things that I had Director Tom Homan do was sign a directive to create some transparency within the foreign student division. And transparency was one of my driving goals there. As we all know, the government does a lot of things, but isn't necessarily all that transparent about what they're doing. And I wanted to make sure that we put a lot of data online. So SEVP, again, this is the Student and Exchange Visitor Program, which oversees OPT. They put online about 15 different data sets. This included the total number of CVIS records with authorizations to work within OPT. This was the top 200 schools, F1 schools, academic, and M1, the vocational schools, like flight schools. We got all that information online. And the top employers, too. And that was the most critical one. We put the list of the top 200 employers within OPT. And that's something that had not been done in the past. We also put online the list of all the J-1 sponsors because the J-1 program was also tracked through CVS, even though it's more of a State Department program. That's the exchange visitor part, the EV of SEVP, right? That's right. And it's actually kind of funny. We gave the State Department a heads up that we were going to be doing this months in advance. And about 24 hours before it was to go live, State Department got all excited, like, why are you doing this? What, what is this? What, what, why are you putting this information online? And we explained to them that not only do we give them a heads up, but why wouldn't we put this online? What's the problem? Right. And I had to just give them one word, which was um, transparency. And they had no response. They couldn't come back with anything. So we eventually got it online. But they apparently were concerned that certain sponsors would be upset with how many sponsorees other sponsors got. Because apparently there's competition. <laughs> Amongst the sponsors, which means more money, more Daddy, sponsors. he got a bigger serving of ice cream than I did. That's right. <laughs> so the data that this all comes from, again, is from CVIS, right? And this is the, again, post-9-11 tracking system, the most significant system that DHS created right after 9-11. And the point of it is, you know, there were people here on student visas among the hijackers. And even before that, in 1993 and other earlier terrorist attacks, there were people on student visas. And the thinking, I think, was, you know, you don't want a student visa from Iran coming here to study French art history. And freshman year, he switches to nuclear engineering and you don't know about it. So, in other That's words, right. that was the thinking behind having this kind of tracking system. That and also the other way as well, meaning that there are people who came to the U.S. on maybe a business visa and suddenly they're getting into flight schools. Right, right. So I started going through this list of the companies, top employers. Right. And what I discovered was that of the top dozen or so employers on the list, maybe almost half of them appeared to be false. Wow. These are companies. Top who, ones. These are the, they employ the largest number. Right. So it's not just like Microsoft and Intel or what have you. These are random companies you never heard of. Interesting. And if you just look at the numbers, I could easily conclude right then and there that there's maybe three, four, five thousand people who are completely in violation of this system and this program. They're straight up lying to DHS in a very obvious way. So working for companies that don't exist and then or at least nominally and then go getting a job somewhere else. It's a national security nightmare. It's a complete disaster, really. And yet what was also troubling was that it appeared that really nobody at ICE had this on their radar. No one was digging into this. No one was noticing this. I mean, they're literally putting this into data sets that are going to be posted online for the public to see. And no one thought to think, hey, I've never heard of this company before. 
maybe someone should look into it. So I'll give you one example. And this is something that David North, our colleague, has written about. It's a company, allegedly a company, called Telon Trading. And I started looking it up online. There's a small little website, has maybe two web pages, and it's in broken English. And it says, we sale, S-A-L-E, we sale mattress parts. <laughs> now, the first problem is- I always get my mattress parts, <laughs> assemble my own mattress. But anyway, go ahead. Yes. And, and of course, the big red flag immediately is not just the broken website and the fact that there's a large number of students working for a mattress manufacturing company. <laughs> it's that the threshold basis of this program is that your major has to match up to your job. So- I don't know if the hot new major in colleges these days is mattress manufacturing. I don't think so, <laughs> but no one seemed to catch that. Now, I started digging into it even further. It was apparently based in Georgia. There was an address on there. I'm using Google street maps to like walk down the streets and look at these buildings. And it's this, this small little window, almost windowless building with like no signs in the middle of a parking lot, no cars. Sorry, there's not 800 students employed here. It was that type of work that I was doing for a lot of these different employers. Which, frankly, ICE could have had high school students do for free, but they just had to start looking into it, and they hadn't. Yeah, basically, all this was publicly available information. You know, I'm looking into the Georgia government business registration website, right. and this company had existed, then it had not existed, then it did, then it didn't. Like, it, it's, it's nothing there. And I did this for a whole bunch of these, these employers, and I put together like 15-page little reports for my colleagues at ICE, which... You know, I'm just trying to give them something that, guys, this is not just me making this up. There's some real problems here. And I remember the head of HSI saying, yeah, John shouldn't have to be the one doing this. Now, I don't know if HSI was bothered by that or I wasn't trying to embarrass them at all. I'm trying to say, this is something you guys need to fix. This is your program. And also, simultaneously, unbeknownst to me, NBC News in Silicon Valley was doing their own investigation based on these, the same data sets. And they were actually sending reporters to some of these work sites, alleged work site addresses. Where's your 800 employees? And they're knocking on doors and no one's answering the doors. I mean, it's an amazing series of videos that I'll, I'll put on our website that are worth watching. Yeah, it'll be in the show notes. Seen them. But in one instance, they dug into an employer website, found an address, and they traced the address to a condo apartment building near San Jose. And... The address was like, you know, apartment 1B. There aren't 700 students working at, out of a, a two-bedroom little condo. But not only that, they actually watched the guy with hidden cameras going from his home to his job. Where was his job? He was working at Google. <laughs> wow. And so they followed him into the parking lot, and they're trying to interview him, and he won't talk to them. They asked Google for some commentary on it, got no response. There's a lot going on here. I mean, hmm. we're talking about Chinese nationals primarily, but also Indian nationals who are ringleaders of a sort, who are encouraging thousands of foreign nationals to put these fake employers into the system in the hopes that DHS doesn't notice. And unfortunately, DHS hasn't noticed. Do we know where, what kind of places these students were actually working at? Presumably they're working somewhere. I know that they were working in sort of some low-key, just, you know, retail-type jobs. Okay, right, I see. So essentially, this is the foreign student version of getting your sociology degree and then working as a barista at Starbucks, kind of. The other thing, too, that we never really got resolved, we just ran out of time, unfortunately, 
I started pointing out to them, okay, these are obviously fake employers on the list, but we're not even thinking about the employers on the list that sound real, like Amazon, Intel, Google. If, if I'm a dumb foreign national trying to lie to DHS, I put Telon trading on the list and hope no one notices. If I'm just a little bit smarter, I say I work at Amazon because that doesn't raise any red flags. I see. Yeah. So then I started saying, And there's guys, no checking? <laughs> yes, you, you know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I said, guys, how about if you actually do audits of all of these legitimate sounding companies and see if they're even showing up there? Right. Well, that was still sort of ongoing when I left. I'm hoping that they're still doing it. But these are just the obvious ones at the very top of the list. My concern also is the bottom of the list. These one-off employers that are way down at like employer number 100,000. The, the oversight isn't anywhere near where it needs to be. So while I was digging into all of this, there's something else that I discovered, and this is also very problematic. The program, SEVP, is largely fee-based. Most federal programs, of course, are run with money from Congress. It's appropriated. But some programs, some agencies are fee-based. For example, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, they have fees attached to all of their, their benefits. And that's what pays everybody's salaries, basically. That's right. And ICE is primarily funded with congressional appropriations. However, SEVP is fee-based. And so a lot of the, the fees that run that program come from schools and from the foreign students. That money, in turn, is paying for over 150 HSI special agents. Hmm. And when I discovered that, this was a bit of a problem because what I said to these folks is that, look, the failure of HSI to detect all of this can only be explained one of two ways. Either HSI is made up of really bad investigators or the 150 investigators who are supposed to be paying attention to this program are focused on something else entirely. Oh, so were the fees supposed to pay for investigators keeping an eye on the program itself? They are paying for it. Oh, really? Day. In yes. other words, it's not just here's 150 investigators, do with them what you want. No. They're supposed to be on the program itself. That's right. Oh, interesting. Now, the thing is, these guys are not bad investigators. Right. They're, right. they're smart people. I had a great time working with them. They're professionals. They know their stuff. So basically, the suits assign them to other things rather than looking into what they're supposed to be looking into. I also think that there's sort of a sense that, eh, foreign students, it's not that sexy of an area to what work. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> but things that maybe are more interesting in the federal investigative world are a little more attractive. Make for better press releases. Right. The drug trafficking, the international fraud, all right. of this is kind of international fraud. Fake NBA jerseys. All of those types of things. And it is true also that HSI has a very large portfolio. But what I was having to point out to them was that this, unfortunately, is a creation of lobbyists, no doubt. But it was put in your guys' laps. This is now your program. And there's obvious fraud that's happening. It makes you look bad. And there's obviously horrible national security problems here. You don't want to be the ones that look like you screwed up. Because you're going to if you don't fix this very soon. So we eventually, in 2020, announced and launched Operation Optical Illusion. And there was a press conference in October last year where we had DHS Deputy Secretary Ken Cuccinelli. We had ICE Director Tony Pham. And we also had an HSI Special Investigator holding an event where they talked about some of the preliminary results. 
they arrested 15 non-immigrant students, who I believe were mostly Indian nationals, who claimed to be employed at certain companies that didn't exist. This was happening, by the way, while the FBI was making their own announcements of different prosecutions that were going on. There were a number of individuals who were creating these, or at least creating the appearance of a fake a company, and they were nevertheless obviously not running any type of business. Sure. And some of them were connected to the PLA in China. There were a lot of bizarre things going on that still have not been fully resolved. But as far as this event announcing the Operation Optical Illusion goes, it was pretty well received by those who were in the know. I think the academic community was a little bit on pins and needles thinking that Trump was going to crack down on foreign students, but we're literally trying to get rid of fraud and, and protect this program, frankly. Right. Um, these arrests, by the way, I should mention, took place across the United States. So we had arrests in Boston, in the Washington, D.C. area, Houston, Fort Lauderdale, Newark, Nashville, Pittsburgh. It included 11 Indian nationals, two Libyan nationals, a person from Senegal, and one from Bangladesh. So it's international, it's nationwide, it's a huge problem. The other thing, too, though, that I was always trying to balance was the fact that this is not something that we're going to fix just through enforcement. We're not, we're not going to arrest our way out of this. Right. And the reason that we needed to have this event, this press conference announcing the operation, was in some sense just to create a sense of deterrence. And if you have thousands of foreign nationals thinking that they can just put completely fraudulent employers into right. a DHS database and get away with it. We got a serious problem, guys. Sure. So I need you to go out there, announce it, and maybe create some deterrence. And I think that started to work a little bit. Uh, but on the other end, of course, is the policy side. And there are ways, I think, to tighten all of this up so it's, it's less of a threat. But again, <laughs> the Trump administration ran out of time. And unfortunately, that program is still running with a lot of the same problems to this day. Seems to me that the actual solution is to abolish OPT altogether. But assuming that doesn't happen, what kinds of things could, say, uh, an administration that's concerned about this do short of actually abolishing the program? So this is something that we had a lot of conversations about. And what we realized is that even though this program was completely created by DHS, when you go to change programs, you need to have a rational basis for the change. It can't just be an arbitrary change. Right. And obviously, the labor concerns, the national security concerns would be legitimate reasons to make edits or changes to the program. But for example, there was a lot of talk about putting an annual cap on it, just like the H-1B. Right. Now, with Congress, they can say 65000 and a couple of years later, change it to 85000 they don't need to explain themselves to anybody, basically. It's Congress. Other than the voters. But, yeah. That's right. But with us, okay, do we make it 85000 Do we make it 100000 How do you make that differentiation? No matter what we do, Lord knows that Silicon Valley is going to be screaming at us. Academia is going to be screaming at us. The media is going to be screaming at us. So coming up with arbitrary numbers like that just didn't seem like the right fix. So what we came down to was that if you really want to get a hold of this program, you have to first realize that this has grown so quickly. It is so large. We don't have the capacity to properly run it. We don't have the resources, really, to properly run it. And you need to somehow make this program much more manageable. And so one of the things that we were looking at was reducing it to a six-month program. For everybody, whether they're STEM or non-STEM or whatever, and more like an actual internship kind of. Precisely, across the board. Mm -hmm. 
the reasoning was that if it was six months, it would help with the security issue because if you're going to be pilfering secrets out of some university's defense technology research department, it's probably going to be very hard for you to do within a six-month period. If you have three years to do this, probably a little bit easier. So reducing it to six months makes sure that the security threats are lessened. But it also benefits us on the labor side of this. Because even though we're talking about a significant number of people, if you're here for six months, you're probably not going to upset the labor market or have too much of an impact compared to being here for three years, which is, of course, long-term employment. You know, the thing that David North, our colleague, likes to point out oftentimes, too, is that when it comes to this employment, the IRS tax rules basically mean that the employer doesn't have to pay taxes, FICA taxes, on those workers. Right. So essentially, I mean, it's subsidized by the taxpayer for all intents and purposes. It is. And of course, trying to change that would mean that we would have to get Congress to change statutory law and get the IRS to start doing things differently. So as DHS, we can't get the IRS to change their practices. We can't get DOL to change their practices. We're a separate department. So if we make our program only six months, maybe that's the way. So it still ends up being subsidized de facto, but it's just much smaller, basically. That's right. And that was sort of the main fix that we were looking at. Of course, there were a lot of other things as well. Maybe getting rid of some of the majors. This is something we can definitely go into in the future. Oh, university majors. Yeah, certain majors maybe shouldn't qualify for this program, certain sensitive majors. I'll be writing more about that likely in the future. But... It's a program that has just grown way too large, and it doesn't have the oversight that it needs. And I think that's obvious to anyone who starts looking at it. As you mentioned, Bill Gates essentially getting the government to create this program for him, it serves as sort of a feeder for the H-1B program. In other words, the way it often works for a lot of people is they get a foreign student visa, then they, whatever, they graduate, and then masquerading as a student work for a tech company. And this is, let's say it's just the legitimate. In other words, let's say they're actually working for Amazon. And then if the company likes them, they try to get an H-1B visa for them. So it's kind of like one step in this progression, this sort of tech engineered immigration pipeline. And then from there, of course, a lot of them want to move towards a green card. Right, right, exactly. That's why you get the H-1B in a lot of cases to get a green card. It's all sort of this plan that's been created by the lobbyists. And sometimes I'm not sure the bureaucrats who run these things are even aware of this. Certainly some of the folks who are higher levels, especially those in the past who helped create it, they were certainly aware of it, going to those cocktail parties in Georgetown with Microsoft lobbyists. But again, the problem is the burden is put on the people who have to run the program. Right. And when things do hit the fan, it's going to be them who are targeted. Right. And right. it'll be Congress who's yelling at them, not anybody else. It'll be Congress yelling at them about their failure to properly manage it. Well, it's their program. They have to tighten it up. And by the way, let me add one more thing before we close here. This year, for the first time since we started back in 2017, SEVP decided not to post online the top 200 employers. So some of the other data sets are still there, they but are. the employer names are not. Because That's correct. how convenient. <laughs> now, my belief is that if they were there, what you would see is that some of these fake employers are still on the list. Right. And it'd be a sign that they haven't fixed the problem. Have we FOIA'd that? So maybe. <laughs> okay. okay. Actually, I'm FOIA pending right now. I heard that we got something back, so I have to go okay. dig okay. into it. But what I can tell you is this, 
members on the Hill wrote a letter to DHS and to ICE asking why this wasn't posted online. And the response they got back a couple of months ago was that they didn't want to post it online because they didn't want legitimate foreign students to see the list. I don't know how many foreign students are hanging out on ICE.gov, but let's just pretend they are. They didn't want these legitimate foreign students to see that list, see the fake employers, assume the fake employers are good, and then report into DHS that that's where they're working. That's not how it works. <laughs> the foreign students who put Telon Trading know what they're doing. Of course they do. Yeah, obviously. And then the other thing that SEVP and ICE and DHS kind of inferred was that they didn't want to put this information online amid ongoing investigations. Now, I hope these investigations are ongoing, and I think there's some additional back and forth that's happening between the Hill and SEVP right now. But my fear is that nothing's happening. We're not talking about it. We're not posting the information online, and we're just going to wait until, I guess, the next administration shows up to clean up the mess. In other words, it's just a way to protect, basically protect the employers. That's right. At the end of it all, it's going to harm HSI, and it's going to harm DHS, and they need to address all these problems. Right. Well, thank you for the sobering report on yet one more screwed up corner of the immigration system. John Fury has been our guest. He has a blog post relating to some of these issues, and we're going to link that on the show notes, as well as whatever other relevant stuff we've been talking about here. And when there's more to report on this issue of Optional Practical Training, OPT, is a huge guest worker program that pretends it's not a guest worker program. We'll have John back to talk about it some more. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, I just wanted to play a snippet from a panel discussion we had this week on the asylum issue. This was the first in-person panel we've had in almost two years because of the COVID thing, but we streamed it as well. It's available on our website, cis.org. And one of our presenters was Congressman Mike Johnson from Louisiana, a member of Republican leadership, but not just the sort of administrative leadership, but he's also one of the thought leaders in the Republican Party, likely to be in a prominent position if and when the Republicans take the majority in the House of Representatives back. And he has actually been active on the asylum issue, asylum reform. He's on the Judiciary Committee, which oversees those issues. And uh, there was just a minute and a half segment I wanted to play about what he's seeing in his hometown as a result of the current administration's asylum policies. The largest city in my congressional district is Shreveport, Louisiana. That's my hometown. It's a mid-sized southern city. Uh, in, in recent months, we have had continuous busloads of illegal immigrants dropped off in our town. Uh, the first made the news uh, maybe three months ago. Uh, someone got a tip and a reporter went down there, a local uh, CB, I think it was the ABC affiliate, and, and got uh, news footage of people. At that point, on that particular busload, it was 80 Haitians just dropped off in our, our city. And they broadcasted on the news to the great alarm of the people in our town. Who are these people? Where are they going? We don't know anything about them. Have they been COVID tested? Well, I, my bones began to ring off the hook. I'm, I'm their member of Congress. I didn't know anything about it. They didn't give any previous notice to our mayor, our, our local law enforcement, anyone at all. So I, long story short, I got the appropriate ICE officials on the phone, and I said, what in the world is going on? And they said, we're so sorry, Congressman, but 
this is we, we don't like this either. We don't think this is a safe situation, but this is what we're ordered to do now. So get used to it because there are going to be many more busloads of people coming. And now I get an email, gentlemen, every I don't know, every three days or so on average of a, a long list. They have to report it to me. I suppose they're still telling our mayor, a Democrat mayor in Shreveport, but I get a long list of names that I cannot pronounce from, from countries all over the world that just, hey, heads up, they're coming to your town. I, I, there's nothing I can do about it because we're in the minority party. And this goes on and on and on, and it seems to be intentional. They're dropping these people off in mid-sized cities all over the South and all over the country. And um, again, I don't know another word. It sounds simplistic. This is crazy, crazy public policy. So the whole discussion is online. It's about one hour with uh, presentations from the congressman, from Art Arthur, and from myself with some Q&A from the audience and from people listening online. A lot of it's on policy. The snippet I just played was about the direct effects in Shreveport, Louisiana, which happens to be Congressman Johnson's hometown. But we also talked about the policy issues and what's actually happening at the border with asylum fraud and what have you. Definitely worth tuning into. Like I said, CIS.org. And I hope you will tune in next week to our next episode of Parsing Immigration Policy. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center for Immigration Studies, signing off for this week.